The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. This is Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to discuss the H-1B cap cases, the pre-registration process, how the whole H-1 system works, the ecosystem, and this is for fiscal year 2024. Along with me are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, TJ, as we call him fondly, his real name is Timothy, uh, who's been with the firm for over 10 years and is one of the co-coordinators of the H-1B non-immigrant department, along with a colleague of mine, Kanya Sanders, a brilliant, knowledgeable, experienced attorney, also the co-coordinator of the incredible H-1B non-immigrant department at the Murthy Law Firm. Um, so we're going to talk about the H-1B, the overview, the selection process, what's involved, the fees. Now, many of you who are veterans of this process probably know a lot of this stuff, but we always explain seminars and sessions with the idea that some people are brand new and have no idea how the process works, while there are others more seasoned who have done H1 processing for many years. So for you H1 seasoned HR folks and CEOs and presidents and immigration paralegals, you can maybe take it a little easy on some sections. So with that, I'm going to get started just providing a very brief background about the H-1B itself. Uh, the H-1B, of course, is meant for a specialty occupation worker. Uh, the number of H-1s each year allowed in the United States is set at 65,000, but out of that, 58,500 is available for the rest of the world because Chile and Singapore use up the rest of the 6,500. Then we have the additional 20,000 extra slots for those who have completed a master's degree from an accredited U.S. nonprofit or public university. And I know we've seen RFEs on that issue as well. And then once the regular quota has been used up, then the USCIS does a separate lottery selection for those with the U.S. master's degree for the additional 20,000, which slightly increases their chance by a very small percentage. So if the H-1B petition is approved under the master's quota for an individual with a master's degree, either from a for-profit uh, by mistake, then the, the, we are seeing that the USCIS, of course, is coming back many years later sometimes, either denying it when an extension is filed or when there's a petition with a new employer, et cetera. Hence, it's obviously very, very important for you as an employer, for you as an employee, as an individual, uh, going through the H-1B process to understand how and what type of arguments to make and which quota you want to fit in because you would rather err on the side of caution if you're not sure. So with that very brief background and overview, I am going to invite TJ to discuss a little bit about the selection process under fiscal year 2024. And before I ask him to start, start explaining it, I know people are like, what do you mean fiscal year 2024? We just started. It's just February 1st of 2023. But remember, the government fiscal year always starts on October 1st and goes right through until September 30th. And because the majority of the year is during 
that 2024 calendar year, it's considered the fiscal year 2024. So with that, TJ, the floor is all yours. Thank you. Thanks, Shayla. Thanks, Shayla. Um, so I, I don't know if you know people may remember, but in the past, uh, petitioners, H-1B employers, needed to, if they wanted to go through the H-1B cap, they needed to file an entire H-1B petition with USCIS, filing fees, LCAs, everything, and hope they got selected. And if they didn't get selected, the package, the entire package would come back to the mail, uh, come back to them in the mail, and all that work was kind of for nothing. So in the fiscal year 2021, you know, right around when the pandemic happened, March of 2020, for the fiscal year 2021, the, the process was changed. Um, so it was changed to just a registration process. So instead of filing and preparing an entire H-1B petition, um, employers seeking to file uh, cap subject petitions, including those eligible for the master's quota, just had to electronically register with USCIS. Um, the employer created, uh, creates an account, an H-1B registering account, in the My USCIS portal, even if an attorney is going to help prepare and submit the registration. So the employer needs to do that no matter what. Uh, the registration period runs for a minimum of 14 calendar days, and it's generally in March. Uh, the petitioner is, unlike filing an entire petition, the petitioner only has to provide basic information about the company and the beneficiary. They're not required to provide anything regarding the actual position, the salary, the job requirements, um, anything at all. I know some people sometimes think, hey, if I offer a, a better job or pay a higher wage, will I get a higher chance of getting selected? Nope, it doesn't matter. USAS doesn't even know what, anything about the job uh, when the registration is submitted. However, the employer is required to attest that each registration is connected with a bona fide job offer, and that if the registration is selected, they do intend to file the H-1B petition for the individual. Now, facts may change after the, the, the registration is submitted, projects are lost, um, so it's understandable if a petition is not filed, but I would say keep records of, of that. The project was lost, uh, the employee left the country, et cetera. Uh, in, in addition to that, the employer, and this is new from last year, the employer must attest that they have not worked with or agreed to work with another registrant, petitioner, agent, or other individual or entity to submit multiple registrations to unfairly increase the chances that an employee, uh, employee's case will be selected in the registration. So, for instance, lots of times what we see is like an employee will have five different employers file H-1B registrations for them, figuring at least one's going to get selected. USCS, however, is, is, you know, looking to make sure, you know, two companies or a couple companies are working together to un unfairly increase the chance that that person is selected. And we've actually seen this come up later on once the H-1B petition is filed. So what, what we see is, let's say, employer A and B both file registrations for an individual and employer A's is selected and B's isn't. So A files their H-1B petition listing B as the end client. USGS comes back and says, oh, we think A and B work together to unfairly you know, increase the chance of selection. So that's something just to keep in mind. Um, um, you know, the, when you submit the registration, it's only a $10 registration fee, so, so not much whatsoever. And then if the registration is selected, 
you'll generally have a 90-day period to file the H-1B petition. USCIS will provide a selection notice, kind of looking like the I-797A H-1B approval notice, uh, that will show the dates for filing, the specific dates that the H-1B petition can be filed, and whether it was selected under the master's or the regular cap. So that's pretty, you know, that's pretty crucial because if, let's say you erroneously file the H-1B under the master's cap, like the, the person was not eligible for the master's cap, um, but the selection notice shows that you were fi- you were, the person was selected under the regular cap, well, the H-1B petition can still be filed because it was selected under the proper cap despite being registered under the wrong cap. However, if, you know, you erroneously file under the master's cap and it was selected under the master's cap, and they're not eligible, you kind of got to wait till next year and do it, do it right. Um, in the past three years, USCIS conducted the lottery during the last week in March and then provided an initial 90-day period, and it was from April 1st to June 30th, to submit the H-1B petition. And then after that 90-day period is up, if USCIS has not received sufficient petitions, H-1B petitions to meet the cap, it will pick additional registrations from those submitted in March and not uh, initially selected. So they will not do a, a second registration period. They'll just pick from the ones that weren't selected previously. Uh, th- the first few years, they actually did do a second lottery. Last year, they didn't, and I tend to think that they, you know, they've, they've got their ducks in a row. They know how many to select. So there probably won't be any additional registration periods or selection periods. But, again, you never know, so don't hold me to it. Um, uh, in terms of the registrations themselves, an, an employer can register up to 250 beneficiaries or employees uh, at the same time and pay the registration fee for the total number of employees. It can't exceed 250, but then they can submit another batch of 250 and, and keep going. Um, but keep in mind, the employer may only submit one registration per beneficiary. If they submit more registrations, for the same beneficiary, multiples, the, it, your, your registration will actually be invalidated. And when the selection comes, it'll be denied, and you're, you're kind of out of luck. Now, a good thing is, last year, USCIS added to its online system a duplicate checker functionality uh, to check the registration process to see if another registration for that employee by the same company um, for the same fiscal year has already been submitted. Uh, you still need to do your due diligence before submitting, though, because this does not check to guarantee that, that the employer will not submit duplicate registrations. It, it only compares the beneficiaries listed in the draft registration with any registrations that have already been submitted. So if you have a draft registration with 15 beneficiaries and you accidentally put the same beneficiary in there twice, this dupl- duplicate checker will not catch it. However, it's, it's definitely a, a benefit, and it will maybe hope to you know, prevent some of those duplicates from being submitted. Thank you, TJ. Uh, and I know that most of you know what the word beneficiary means, but beneficiary is just an employee. It's a technical term. Sometimes we as immigration lawyers live this language that we forget that there's a normal world out there with normal people who may say, what the, what on earth does this beneficiary <laughs> term mean? So it's just a person applying for the H-1B petition. So the next issue which we're going to touch upon is where Kanya is going to talk about. So we hear about, you know, cap-exempt employers, this employer, exceptions to the rule. So what are the kinds of categories of people or of employees or beneficiaries, Kanya, who are subject to this H-1B cap slash quota? Okay, thank you, Sheila. 
Right. So the beneficiary or an individual subject to the H-1B cap means, you know, who has to go through this lottery process, okay? Um, so an individual who has never, generally never held H-1B in the past would generally be subject to the cap. There are some cases where a person who was counted against the cap in the past but was outside the U.S. for at least one continuous year may choose to be counted against the cap to receive another new full six-year period in H-1B, or they may choose not to be counted against the cap uh, but use whatever time they have left from their original H-1B. For example, somebody was counted against the cap, they were picked in the lottery, they were on H-1B in the USA for four years, and then they left the U.S. and have been outside the U.S. for more than a year. Now, if they wanted to come back to the U.S. on H-1B, they can either have an employer file a cap exempt, that means saying that they are exempt from the cap and do not have to go through the lottery for the two remaining years, or they can say, oh, I, I want another full six years, then try my luck um, in the H-1B lottery again. So they have that option. Then we have physicians who have obtained J-1 waivers through the Conrad IGA program. They do not have to go through the lottery period. They are considered to be cap-exempt. Those individuals are considered cap-exempt, so anybody can file an H-1 petition for them at any time without going through the lottery or the registration process. There's a third category. These are employers who are considered cap-exempt. That means the employers are cap-exempt. This includes employment at and by universities and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as nonprofit and governmental research organizations. It is always important to discuss with your attorney to make sure that the employer is kept exempt because there are a lot of nuances associated with that. So, so that's kind of like a summary of who is subject to the cap and who is not. Now, moving on to like what is required to qualify for an H-1B. Okay? Now, the H-1B program is defined as a specialty occupation position that must require at the minimum a bachelor's degree or the equivalent in a specific field of study that is associated with the position that is being offered. So the foreign national candidate must possess the required education or the equivalent at the time of filing the petition. It, it, they don't have to have had the degree at the time of registration. So if you are filing the registration in March, they're going to be graduating in May, you're filing the petition in June, they're fine. As long as you're sure that they will, once you register that they will, graduate in May before you file the petition in June, you know, before the deadline for filing, that is fine. But everybody thinks that sometimes, okay, just because the person has a bachelor's degree, that whatever job I offer to them will qualify for H-1B. 
No. The position itself must require a bachelor's degree at the minimum to perform the duties and responsibilities. Now, the Department of Labor has its Occupational Outlook Handbook where they provide classifications for positions and they would state in the OOH what are the minimum requirements for a particular position. So if the OOH does not say that this position requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field, then that position may not qualify for an H-1B and will be considered to be a specialty occupation. Now, again, if a position requires a bachelor's degree in any field, it is not a specialty occupation. The, the position must require a specialized training in a specific field through a bachelor's degree level of education for that position to be considered a specialty occupation and you know qualifying for H-1B. When we talk about when we say bachelor's degree or is equivalent, the equivalent means that, say, uh, uh, the equivalent should be equivalent to a U.S. degree. A U.S. degree is a four-year degree. So if the individual has a three-year degree from a university abroad, then that is not an equivalent degree. However, you can use experience, at least minimum of three years of experience to substitute one year of college level education. Can you use an um, evaluator to evaluate your education plus experience to provide an equivalency to a US degree evaluation? But these evaluations are highly scrutinized. They, uh, these evaluations must be performed by professors who are authorized to grant college credit or equivalent experience at U.S. universities that grant college credit of experience. If the beneficiary does not have the actual physical diploma at the time of filing, again, not registration, he or she would need to obtain a letter from the school's registrar or dean verifying that the individual has completed all requirements for the degree and that they're just merely waiting for the physical diploma. Okay, so basically the, the, the degree is conferred upon them because they've completed everything. They just they are waiting just for the paper diploma. Thank you, Kanya. <laughs> So as you can see, what might look like a very simple pre-registration process for you as an employer or for your HR has all these very important nuances that you have to focus on because the form itself looks so simple and straightforward, but like everything in the world, you know, it may superficially appear to be simple, but there's all these levels of complexity. In fact, I recently had a consultation where the person, like the HR sent in an application and the employer the individual or the employer sent in. Now, obviously, both got canceled, and the government said that they're going to revoke, and they had approved the petition last year's cap, and they had to then take it back and lose everything. Uh, in another case, I think there was issues about the actual, like, the date of the, uh, the graduation, um, you know, when did, they, when did the diploma actually get received, uh, because you have to look at all those dates before just determining 
which category should I file under? Am I eligible? Is this an H-1B specialty occupation that's going to get approved or not? So the next big issue that we are obviously going to touch upon is what is required to qualify for the master's cap? Because most people who've done a U.S. master's degree, in the, you know, before we started seeing the rampant RFEs and denials, most people just said, oh, I've done a U.S. master's. I'm eligible to file under the master's cap. And for many years, the USCIS didn't actually bother and even look at those cases. And then suddenly, one t at one time, about maybe seven years ago, they just started giving these RFEs and denials and harass, you know, literally felt like harassing because all these years you had filed your renewals and your extensions, and this was suddenly sort of thrust upon you. So what is required to qualify for the master's cap? So as I mentioned earlier, there's 20,000 extra slots just for individuals who have completed a, U a U.S. master's degree from a nonprofit or public university, right? So people may say, well, what is a nonprofit or public university, right? So well, that's another, that's something we really don't have a lot of time to get into, uh, but that's something that you're going to discuss with your lawyer before you even do your pre-registration. So to qualify, the individual must have completed the master's degree from a qualifying U.S. university or institution of higher education. The school must be properly accredited by a national accrediting agency or association right here in the United States. Pre-registration or pre-accreditation status is also acceptable. Additionally, the university must be a public or private nonprofit institution. So again, as I said, we, we analyze what those mean because if it's a for-profit university, out of luck, you're out of luck. So you're better off just filing under the regular bachelor's quota uh, to be on the safe side. So if neither of these requirements are satisfied, then the degree will not qualify the individual to apply under the master's cap exemption. Now, regarding the timing of the degree, if the degree will get awarded after the registration period has closed, but within the 90-day filing period, then the registration can be submitted under the master's cap, but the degree must be awarded prior to actually filing the H-1 petition. So in some universities, usually the filing period, as we know, if the registration is happening in March, as it happens in most years, they allow you to file April, May, June. Most people only graduate and actually get the degree by May, end of May, sometimes early June. Well, even though you can file, maybe if you've been selected right away, you, can't, you should not file in April or May, maybe closer to early or mid-June when you actually get the degree, master's degree awarded, right? So again, these are important dates to keep in mind, and whether it's the HR or the employer, if you mess it up, then you're going to mess up that person's case, and you're after paying all the fees and all the trouble, the case will get denied ultimately because it's incorrectly filed under the U.S. master's quota. So in fact, in the preamble to the final rule that created this H-1B registration, this pre-registration system, the USCIS noted that the final rule does not alter the general requirement for establishing eligibility at the time the petition is filed with the USCIS, right? So that's the crux of the issue. The person has to be qualified at the time of filing it, even if they were not qualified at the time of the pre-registration. And the eligibility for the H-1 classification does not need to be demonstrated at the time the registration is filed or submitted, 
USCIS actually confirmed this uh, in a, uh, about a year ago. They had a webinar on this issue, and they actually talked about it um, a, year, a couple years ago in the, in the USCIS webinar. And so to summarize, accordingly, as long as the employee or the beneficiary has completed all of the degree requirements before the petition is filed with the USCIS, the beneficiary then may qualify for either the master's cap or the regular cap. And given that the 90-day filing window for the vast majority of registrations selected will start on April 1st of 2023, um, H-1B candidates who are expected to graduate before June of 2023 can likely use those degrees to qualify and file after they obtain the actual degree, they finish their commencement or obtain the degree. Um, so next we're going to touch upon will the beneficiary be able to change status to H-1B in the U.S.? Common question, of course, and common RFEs that we see all the time is, hey, has your candidate, has the employee beneficiary maintained valid non-immigrant status in the U.S.? And so I'm going to ask TJ to jump in because it's very common that the F-1 OPT ends up getting expired like in the summer, before October 1st, and I'm sure many of you are aware of the rules, but TJ, take it away. All right, thanks, Jayla. So, you know, generally, if you, know, if you want your status changed within the U.S., you're, you're asking USCIS to say, hey, change my status from F1 as a student or H4 as a spouse of an H1B um, within the U.S. to H1B, um, you're, you're asking USCIS essentially to change your status so you don't have to travel outside the country. So as it relates to the H-1B cap and the H-1B registration, if you want to be able to change your status in the United States, in general, you need to show that your current status will continue until at least September 30th, 2023. Um, this is because the H-1B start date is for October 1st of 2023. So you need to show you're maintaining your status till that date. So if you're in H-4 status as a, as a spouse of an H-1 and you want to change to H-1B, you need to show that your, your um, H-4 status is currently valid until at least September 30th, 2023. However, um, there, there's a slightly different rule, and it's very important and very crucial, for individuals in F-1 status. If the student is in F1 status or, you know, their OPT, which is still F1 status, but on their employment authorization after their schooling ends, if that status expires prior to September 30th, they may be eligible for what's known as a, a cap gap extension, which would continue to thir uh, September 30th. This is assuming that four conditions are met. First, that the H-1B petition is filed before the expiration of their OPT, their STEM OPT, or the end of their F-1 grace period. So individuals in F-1 status after their program ends or after their OPT get a 60-day grace period to change status, to, you know, leave the country, things like that. Um, so that's the first requirement. The second requirement is that the change of that a change of status is requested on the H-1B petition. So you're actually asking USCIS, hey, USCIS, as of October 1st, change my status to H-1B. You're not saying approve this for consular notification and I'll, I'll leave the country and, and get a visa and come back. So that's the second requirement. The third is that an October 1st 
start date is requested. And that's important because with the new registration system, you're filing H-1B petitions less than six months prior to October 1st. So you can actually request a start date after October 1st. But if you want to benefit from this cap-gap provision, make sure to put an October 1st start date. And then ultimately, the H-1B needs to be approved. Um, so if, if those requirements are met, then you are eligible for this cap-gap extension. It's important to remember, though, that registration for the lottery itself does not provide cap-gap benefits. So if your F-1 status is, is valid until you know, April 15th and you register, but you're not selected, you're not eligible for this cap-gap. Um, you can only be eligible for the cap-gap if the registration is selected and the cap subject H-1B petition is filed according to the rules that I just discussed above. Um, so to be eligible for cap-gap under this new registration process, a student selected in the registration and whose F-1 status or the you know, applicable OPT ends during the 90-day period to file the H-1B petition, the, the H-1B petition must be filed before the end of the status or the OPT, regardless of when the 90-day period ends. So, for instance, let's say your OPT ends on April 8th, okay? So, therefore, you want to file the H-1B petition. You want to get selected, then file the H-1B petition before April 8th. Not before the 90-day period is up, but before April 8th. So, there are several steps involved in preparing an H-1B petition, including preparation of an LCA, which can take 7 to 10 business days to, to get certified. And historically, there are glitches in the system for LCAs and things like that. So if you're in the situation I just discussed, you know, April 8th, OPT ends, you want to have your H-1B petition prepared and ready to go, even if you haven't been selected yet, so that if you are selected, you can file that H-1B petition before um, April 8th. Um, and then the CAP-GAP extension, this extension period start, uh, starts when the current period of F-1 status ends, regardless of whether they're in OPT at the time. Uh, if the student is in OPT, they get an additional benefit to CAP-GAP. So not only are they allowed to stay until September 30th, but they can also continue their work authorization. However, if the H-1B CAP subject petition is filed after the employment ends or when they're not on OPT, they can remain, but they can't um, continue to work. They can remain, but that's only assuming that it's filed within their 60-day grace period or within their, uh, you know, while they're in F1 status. Um, so it's, it's, it's really important to kind of keep those dates in mind, uh, get ready and prepare an HRB petition if you have to, even if you don't know you're going to be selected, so that you can possibly benefit from this cap gap extension. Thank you, TJ. Yes, it's very, very, as you can see, it's, again, so nuanced, so complex. There's dates, and you just have to be very, very careful. Oh, I have three months to file. The, the, the standard registration response, say, congrats, you've been selected in the registration. You have three months to file. The government isn't, the USCIS isn't doing research and investigation to see when the person's status expires, what's the date to file. And that's the reason you want to really look at it carefully to ensure eligibility with what TJ just explained to you all. Um, and so that's why some people are extra cautious and safe and say, you know what, I'm just going to have the attorneys review all of this very important status-related issues before we 
just go ahead and think, oh, I can just do that simple pre-registration. So next, let me invite you, Akanya. So what happens if the petition is either denied or revoked? Okay. So if the petition is denied or revoked, then the cap gap extension will terminate. Now, if the petition is denied or revoked prior to October 1, then the, you, know, you don't get that cap gap extension until September 30th. It will end as of the date of denial. And if you're still not within a 60-day grace period, you would need to then leave the country. If the petition is still pending after September 30th, the student is still in a period of authorized stay, but if they had that OPT cap gap extension until September 30th, that will end on September 30th. So they will not get the extension of the right to work beyond September 30th, um, even if the H-1B petition is still pending after September 30th. So again, CAPGAP work authorization ends with September 30th. A petition also may be rejected in the lottery or due to some defect in the petition that USCIS could not accept it for processing. So if that happens and you're not able to then file it just before the, you know, before the deadline of June 30th, then unfortunately you're going to be out of luck, you don't have cap gap, and you're not going to be able to benefit from having been selected in the H-1B lottery. Now, in order to obtain proof of cap gap extension, the student must contact the school DSO and request an updated I-20. This is the student's responsibility, not the DSO's. So sometimes, you know, students think, okay, you know, the DSO will take care of everything that I need. No, if you, you know, you have to make sure that you have everything that you need to ensure that you are in valid status. Now, CVIS also strongly recommends that students do not travel outside the U.S. during the cap gap extension. Also, USCIS will consider the change of status request to be abandoned if the beneficiary leaves the U.S. while the petition is pending. Say that you have filed the petition for a change of status from F1 to H1, and while the petition is still pending, if you leave the U.S., even if you were to leave the U.S. for like one day, you cross the border into Canada and come back, that ends your change of status request. I mean, I, you know, we had a situation where the person just crossed the border for a couple of hours to go to Niagara Falls. That was the end of it. So uh, USCIS does not care whether you are leaving the U.S. for two days or a month or a couple of hours. As once you leave the U.S. border, your change of status request is considered abandoned. And just to clarify, um, Kenya, so they would actually, the change of status part, as you just said, is deemed abandoned by law upon departure, but USCIS could still approve the CAP subject petition, but unfortunately that would mean having to travel abroad, getting stuck for however many weeks or months that it takes at a U.S. consular post, whether it's in India or some other part of the world. Uh, so that's still an op option, but, right. you know, you can't start working from October 1st, you can't get the change of status approval, and that innocent two hours hop onto, like she said, to the 
to see uh, the beautiful view of Niagara Falls from the other side in Canada was a very expensive lesson. Um, you know, and again, that's a lesson, lesson for if you're an individual or even an employer that your employees talk to you before they travel or do anything because there's so many legal implications. Okay, Kanye, I know that we are kind of not running short, but we're close to 40 minutes, which is surprising because I thought we would usually try to wrap up between 30 and 45 minutes, but we're going to wrap up very soon. These are the most complex issues. So let's wrap it up with your discussion. I'll very briefly go over it and then we'll go over the, you know, what are the RFP issues. Uh, go ahead. Sure. Okay. So, so I just want to say that if you do leave the U.S. while the F1 is pending, uh, then, uh, I mean, the H1 is pending, then you need to wait outside the U.S., wait for the H1B petition to be approved, then apply for a visa, the H1B visa, and come back. Now, there are situations where people are not on F1 status, but they are on other statuses. So if the beneficiary is not in F1 status, but they are in, say, H4, B2, L2, uh, L1, what, you know, whatever other status, and their current status ends prior to October 1, okay, then there's no cap gap for those who are not on F1. So, so unless you or she cannot maintain a non-immigrant status until September 30th, then that individual will not be able to change status to H1B effective October 1. So in this case, a petition should be prepared for consular processing. That means an H-1B petition approved for consular processing does not allow the beneficiary to work in the U.S. immediately. This means that the beneficiary will need to leave the U.S. before the end of their current status, apply for the H-1 visa based on the H-1B petition approval, then return to the U.S. to begin the H-1B employment. So the issues regarding the status change in the U.S. are really complex, and you should discuss it with an attorney, um, you know, depending on what your status is prior to filing the petition. Thank you, Kanya. And so I don't want to touch up, you know, waste too much time, but the only reason I mentioned the H-1B filing fees is because if you are a first-time employer doing an H-1, you can get a mini heart attack because more than the lawyer fees, because people joke about lawyers being expensive, but lawyer fees are nothing next to the government filing fees to file the H-1B cap subject case. So first you have the $460 base filing fee. You have a $500 anti-fraud fee. Again, those are required and strongly recommended that only the employer must pay it according to USCIS to avoid any allegations that it is dipping into the prevailing wage for the employee by the employee paying it. Then there's the additional either $750 or $1,500 training fee. Again, according to both Department of Labor and USCI, the employer must pay that. But the, the difference in price fee is basically price or fee is whether they're 25 or less employees, then they have to pay the 750 fee. Uh, more than 26 or more, then they pay the 1500 training fee. And then there was that border protection fee that suddenly sprung up of $4,000 again, must be paid by the employer, if they have 50 or more employees and more than 50% of the employees are either on H-1B uh, or L-1A or B or combined total. So if you're an H-1B or L-1 cap dependent employer with more than 50% of the employees, now you have this additional $4,000 that you have to pay. So it's not just a couple thousand, now you're talking 6,000 if you're an H-1B cap dependent employer 
Plus, if you say, you know what, I don't want to wait three months, six months, whatever, eight months to get the approval, you now pay for the premium processing fee, which is optional. That's an additional $2,500. So you're literally, I mean, you're literally talking like over $10,000, right? Um, you know, it's like four and five and six and a half, uh, you know, literally almost just under $10,000 in government filing fees. So let's jump to the common, the most common issues. Again, they'll very briefly touch upon these encountered by ID consulting companies with their H-1 petitions, which we know are specialty occupation, qualification of the, the, the candidate or the employee's qualifications, and the person having maintained the status issues we've already kind of touched upon. So with that, I'm going to invite TJ to jump in first and then Katya to close out before doing a quick closing. TJ? Right, I'll try and go through this real quickly. I mean, this could be this could be a teleconference in its own right um, because it's complicated in so many issues. But let's touch on it kind of briefly. So one of the common issues we see is is the H-1B job a specialty occupation? And a specialty occupation, uh, like Kanye talked about, is, is a, a position that requires at least a bachelor's degree or higher in a specific field of study. So it's very important uh, when when preparing an H-1B petition to make sure the job duties are. It's clear from the job duties that this is a complex position, right? Don't just give general job duties. USPS will come back and say, we can't tell if it's a specialty occupation because these duties are just, we can't really tell what the person is doing. These duties are too broad, too vague. So, so be very specific. Make it clear, hey, this is a, you know, a technical position that requires a degree in computer science. And it's also important when you describe what degree is required for the position that you, you say a specific degree or related degrees. Don't say that it requires a degree, any degree, or a degree in computer science, business, accounting, or related. That's, that's not going to work. Um, it's also improve, uh, important to, you know, look at the occupational classification that is chosen. Uh, like I kind of talked about the OH, there's certain occupational classifications that generally don't require a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study or a bachelor's degree at all. You know, web developer, I believe, is, is one of them that generally doesn't require a bachelor's degree. Um, there are a couple others, um, architectural drafter, things like that, 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 that don't require that bachelor's degree. Um, and then just kind of a, a last point in that is the higher the wage level, not as much now, but the higher the wage level, the more USCIS is likely to see the position as a specialty occupation. Uh, that came up more during the Trump administration, but I think it's still important. If it's a wage level four, the highest wage level position, oh, yeah, this is clearly a complex job. You know, they're paying at the level four wage. Um, so that's just specialty occupation in a nutshell. Another issue we see is, is whether the beneficiary, the employee, is qualified for the job. So if you've got this, you know, IT position, you want to see that they have that degree in an IT-related field. So if you see a degree in business, a degree in some other field, it's going to make it for a, a more complex case. Um, so if they don't have that related degree, you'd want to show that the combination of their education and experience is the equivalent of the related degree uh, by getting a professor in the field to kind of review this stuff and say, yep, you know, this, is the, the, this combo is equal to the, a degree in computer science or whatnot, that will get a little bit more higher scrutiny. And it may not be necessarily relevant to cap cases because 
for the most part, these individuals that, that you're filing for that are filing the H-1B TAP cases don't have those experience, that experience, so they're relying on their degree. Uh, just something to keep in mind when preparing the, the CAP petition for the specialty occupation and qualification issue. Um, and then there's also the maintenance of status issue that I think Tanya will discuss a little bit. Okay, yes. So the other issue that comes up uh, a lot is mostly related to uh, student uh, individuals who are on F1 status and they are changing, you know, status to H1B, whether they have, you know, maintained their F1 status. Um, this comes up mostly with individuals who have um, obtained CPT, that is, they have used curricular practical training uh, during their F1 period, USCIS will scrutinize, especially if they had CPT from day one, whether that CPT complied with the regulations, whether it was a legitimate CPT or it was in you know, violation uh, of the regulations or it's not in compliance. Also, to see when they have CPT, whether they have complied with the attendance of classes uh, about online versus in person. So those are the issues that come up. And also, maintenance status comes up with the STEM OPT at third-party work locations as well to see if the employment are under STEM OPT at the third-party locations again complied with the regulations and met all the requirements. So these are things you want to keep in mind when um, your employee, the beneficiary of the petition, has engaged in CPT or in CMOPT at third-party locations. Thank you, Kanya. Uh, thank you, TJ. So, you know, as you can see, this obviously is a very simple, seemingly simple but very complicated issue. And what we have seen over the past couple of years is the Biden administration has, you know, largely reversed many of the harsh policies and proposed regulations of the prior administration, which have, which had seriously and negatively impacted the H-1B program. Um, in the past year or two, we have obviously noticed a much lower number of RFEs uh, for H-1B petitions, which is wonderful news for you all who are listening to this session right now. Uh, however, we are still seeing scrutiny of specialty occupation, maintenance of status, uh, related issues, especially for students, um, you know, on F1, OPT and CPT, which we're continuing to see. And because we're so mindful of the time and we have sort of crossed the 45 minutes, which is very rare, I just, on behalf of myself, Sheila Musi, as president and CEO of the Musi Law Firm, on behalf of Kanya Sanders, our senior attorney, along with TJ, and our entire team at the Musi Law Firm, we thank you for joining us today. We hope we can continue to help you as you file these pre-registration cases or H-1 petitions. And we really look forward to taking very good care of you in this year, 2023, and continue to wish you all the very best to you and your family as we are here already in the midst of the new year. Take care and have a wonderful day. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.